0: The Peter Shift Show. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest Therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.comslash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's slash help, gold. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. I want to start off today's podcast by talking about gold and the volatility that we've seen over the last couple of days. And all of that started on Sunday night. I did my last real podcast on Friday, although I did uh, make a video yesterday specifically about uh, gold for Shift Gold. Some of you may have already seen that, so I may repeat a few of the things that, that I mentioned there, but I want to elaborate on on some of them. Plus, we have an extra day uh, market action since I recorded that Shift Gold video yesterday. But on Sunday night, we had a spike higher in the price of gold. Gold, gold opened maybe uh, $40 higher, $20, $30 higher, something like that. And it immediately rallied about $65. Gold hit a new all-time record high, which is very significant because gold is an important monetary metal. And the fact that it traded at its highest U.S. dollar price in the history of the country is a significant thing that happened uh, that a lot of people are dismissing. But gold traded at 2,135. I think it was slightly above that level. Uh, But then there was a sharp sell-off in the price of gold, obviously there was some profit taking, some speculators that had correctly anticipated a gold rally, well, they took advantage of that rally and they sold. I mean, that's what traders do. They make a bet and then they cash in. And so when you get a big gap up uh, in the night, that's generally what a trader is going to do. They're going to take their winnings and, and, and book, the, book the gains. But I also think that you might have had some short sellers that decided to take a shot, that gold was uh, short term overbought and that they would take a position. And that makes sense. Uh, But also, you know, a lot of people say, hey, Peter, what about manipulation? You know, you're always overlooking the fact that the market is manipulated. And I'm not uh, ascribing to the theory that there is an organized plot. Uh, to manipulate uh, the price of gold. But I I certainly recognize that it's within everybody's interest (laughs) to suppress the price of gold. Certainly it's in the government's interest. It's in Wall Street's interest. It's like if your goal is to, you know, kill all the coal miners with gas, right? And, you know, they, they, they bring the canary into the coal mine. And, you know, if the canary... Drops dead, you know. The miners realize that. Oh my God, there's gas. Let's get out of this mine. Well, if your goal is to, you know, kill all those coal coal miners with gas, you may try to find a way to keep that canary alive, right? So that they don't they don't they don't get the warning. And and so, uh, gold is really the economic canary in the monetary coal, monetary coal mine, right? You know that if gold really goes up, that's a warning sign. Hey, there's a problem here in fiat land. You know, maybe we ought to do something because, you know, gold just, you know, spiked way up. So certainly maybe Wall Street banks or whoever it is, or maybe the plunge protection team, you know, which, you know, the government has this special plunge protection team that if the market is getting clobbered, they go in there and they buy stocks. Right. We we know they exist. Well, maybe they have a surge prevention team when it comes to gold. They see a big spike up, gold's at new highs, we gotta do something, we, we gotta sell some gold futures uh, to suppress the price of gold just the way we uh, buy stock futures to prop up their value. Remember, quantitative easing, when the government was buying a bunch of treasury bonds, the goal was to raise the price of those bonds. That's what brought interest rates down. So they manipulated uh, the treasury market by intervening and, and, and buying bonds. So they could certainly be doing the same thing uh, with respect to suppressing the gold price. I don't think it's an organized conspiracy, but I think that the government has an interest uh, in not seeing the price of gold skyrocket. Wall Street, you know, you know they're not particularly interested in, 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 in gold upsetting the apple cart and, and shining a light on these big problems in uh, with paper assets because they make their money with paper assets. They don't really make their money selling gold. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I get that they're going to see this and, you know, try to sell into it. But it's not going to be able to stop the overall move. I mean, can it slow it down? Like, sure. I mean, it slowed it down on, uh, on Sunday night because there was selling that came into the market. But what's more significant than the fact that gold got to two thousand one hundred and thirty-five, and then sold back down to two thousand and twenty, which is about where it is now. In fact, let me—I'll check the current price as I'm recording this live. Yeah, we're at two thousand and twenty-one in the price of gold. Yes, we had a hundred and thirty dollars sell-off. But we're still above 2,000. 2,000 was the resistance. It has now become the support. And the market has moved to a new high that eclipsed all the previous highs. That is a very bullish indication. I now think that this is the support, that any move below 2,000 is a buy. And I think a lot of the buyers, the big long term accumulators of gold who have been buying all the way up, have now raised their bids and now they're buying at 2,000 or maybe slightly above, or if they get lucky, slightly below. I think we have exhausted the supply of sellers below 2,000. We now have a new range that likely will be around 2,000 that will define support or slightly below. And the new short-term resistance would be the high from uh, Sunday night, which is about 2,135. Now, how much longer will that high contain the market? Probably not much longer. It may be a short-term resistance level, but I think the market is going to take it out and moves substantially higher. So I would not be concerned that gold sold off after making a new all-time record high. The important thing is that gold made a new all-time record high, which is something I had been forecasting, and that after it sold off, it's still above 2,000. And of course that sell-off took a lot of selling out of the market. We've already had a decent correction and we're still above 2,000. That is Uh, positive news. Now, I think another thing that has been undermining the significance of of what happened with with, with real gold is what's happening with Fool's Gold, with Bitcoin, which as I'm talking, Bitcoin is at 44,000. It's had a big run. Uh, Bitcoin is not going up for the same reason that gold might go up because it's got nothing to do with gold. Bitcoin is going up because people are speculating that once these spot Bitcoin ETFs are launched that there's going to be a whole crop of new buyers pent up demand that has been sitting on the sideline waiting for a spot Bitcoin ETF in the U.S. to buy and that there's all this demand that is going to uh, uh, show up uh, once uh, these uh, new ETFs are launched. Now I think that's a bad bet. I don't think that demand is there. I think Pretty much everybody who wanted Bitcoin bought it. And I think the speculators uh, are, are, are wrong here. I think there's pent-up selling, not pent-up buying. I think there's a lot of whales that would love to t- take advantage of e- these ETFs uh, to bail out. You know, that where the ETFs would be the bag holders, where you can create uh, some buying interest. I think, again, they're going to be disappointed. It's going to be a buy the rumor, sell the fact. And it may not even make it to the fact. It may be a buy the rumor, sell the rumor. Uh, The market might collapse before these ETFs are launched. But if it doesn't crash before, it will crash after. You know, I was watching on CNBC this morning, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, I guess the only good thing he did is he mentioned me in his book. You know, when he, he, he wrote this book about the 2008 financial crisis, and he mentioned me in one line because he was talking about Uh, Bear Stearns and how everybody thought they were so great and then he quoted me from some appearance that I had Maybe it was on CNBC, but I don't remember where I basically said come on. They're insolvent Uh, You know, I don't believe these earnings. They have all these bad loans on their books And so he acknowledged that hey while all the mainstream uh, Investment banks, you know were complacent this guy Schiff said he didn't believe the earnings and he thought there were huge losses uh, buried in the balance sheet of course I was right Now, maybe that was the last time Sorkin uh, mentioned me uh, because now that he works at CNBC, he's not allowed to mention me. But in any event, so um, I was listening to him this morning in my car. You know, I drop my kids off from school every morning, and so I'm listening on, you know, Sirius XM, and I'm listening to CNBC as I'm driving. And he's, he's running down the markets, and he's talking about what happened in, you know, uh, the stock market in the futures, what's happening with bonds. He talked about oil. And then he says, let's take a look at gold. And then he immediately talks about Bitcoin. And he says Bitcoin, our preferred way to measure gold, digital gold, and he then says what Bitcoin is doing. And then he doesn't even mention what actual gold is doing. So CNBC has decided that Bitcoin is gold, right? That, That the real gold, doesn't exist anymore because it's been replaced by Bitcoin. And in fact, then he actually said that not only is Bitcoin the way we measure gold, <laughs> but he said it's also the way we measure risk on, risk off. I mean, it's, it's now the be-all and end-all of financial instruments. I mean, it's like you want to know what's going on, just check Bitcoin because Bitcoin is going to tell you everything. I mean, it seems to me that CNBC is just completely beholden to their crypto advertisers who are constantly you know running ads on the network uh, they, they, they need to basically uh, you know feed that and so they have to keep that this uh, false narrative going that Bitcoin is digital gold and so you have to look at that Bitcoin is going up for reasons having nothing to do with the economy the Fed monetary policy it is all speculation it is front-running these ETFs, and uh, but th- what's more significant is that they 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 think it's gold. But the point I'm making is that it's part of the reason that uh, people are not putting gold's rally in its perspective. It's not getting the respect <laughs> that that it that it deserves, uh, uh, and and Bitcoin is part of that problem, right? It's kind of stealing the thunder, and but to me, it's just a distraction. It's a bunch of noise. And the fact that we had this big uh, pullback, to me, it's just another gift opportunity because had gold kept going up on Sunday night, if we didn't get sellers coming in and gold was 2200 $2,300, who knows if it really broke out and went up several hundred dollars the way I believe it will eventually. See, one day there's not going to be enough sellers. There's not going to be the shorts there. I mean, it's going to take off. But the fact that it didn't, the fact that it pulled back, well, that just gives you another opportunity to buy it, to see the strength that underlies this market and use the fact that we've now pulled back to where I think is support. Again, I've been telling people buy, 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 now all the way up, but now support is higher. So you can't wait for 1,800 anymore, right? You gotta buy 2,000. And if you keep waiting, then maybe you're gonna have to buy the dip from 2,500 to 2,200, right, if that's the range that we get into. But the point is, these are opportunities, and don't let uh, uh, financial news try to focus on the decline uh, while, you know, uh, missing the forest for the trees. Anyway, we've got a quick commercial. We'll come right back. we got more of the podcast coming up at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeletemecom slash gold code gold. So another reason uh, to be bullish on the price of gold is more bearish economic data that came out during the week. In particular, the factory orders for October were much weaker than expected. They were looking for a decline of 2.6%. And instead, we got a decline of 3.6%. So a substantially bigger decline in factory orders. And in fact, the gain from the prior month was revised down to a smaller gain from what was originally reported as up 2.8% to up just 2.3%. But I think more significant was the JOLTS number that came out today. The JOLTS is the... The job openings, these are the unfilled jobs that supposedly the unemployed uh, can can be hired to fill. Now, I mentioned on a prior podcast last week that the the continuing claims had hit a multi-year high. So a lot of the people who have lost their jobs are not finding uh, new jobs. It's taking them longer to find new jobs. And if the availability of jobs is declining, that's going to compound that. And this is more evidence uh, of a weaker labor market. Now, we'll see where we get the non-farm payroll report on Friday. Uh, we get the ADP tomorrow. So when I do my next podcast, which I'm planning on doing it uh, Friday, probably after the market closed, closed, uh, we'll get more data on, on the jobs market, which I think will confirm further deterioration in that market. And of course, everybody already believes the Fed has done hiking that the Fed is going to be cutting rates, uh, maybe as soon as Q1 of next year, but certainly by Q2, the Fed's going to be cutting rates and probably back to quantitative easing. All of this is extremely bullish for gold, especially since inflation is going to accelerate as a result of that uh, reversal on the part of the Fed. Uh, People still think inflation is going away. It's here to stay. The Fed has deliberately created inflation for more than a decade, the current price structure hasn't even caught up to the prior years of inflation creation, let alone all the years in the future where the Fed is going to be creating even more inflation. You know, I was reading an article to uh, Paul Krugman, you know, trying to rationalize why uh, uh, Biden is so unpopular and why the polls uh, don't jive with his fantasy view of this booming U.S. economy that's so great, basking in the sunshine of of Bidenomics. And so according to uh, Paul Krogman, it's all about partisan bias that for some reason, Republicans who are just doing so well in this great economy, refuse to give credit to Biden because they just don't like him. And so their politics are clouding the way they answer these questionnaires. So yeah, even though they're really doing good, either they're lying and pretending they're not, or they don't even realize how good they have it because they're too busy hating on Biden. And so their own political bias is saying, well, I don't like Biden, he's such a bad guy, so the economy must be good. And they're just overlooking their own experience about how great it is. Now, I don't know if this guy actually believes his own BS or if he actually, you know, he's making this up, But it is a bunch of nonsense uh, to try to claim that the people don't even realize how good they have it. What's more likely is that the politicians in the Biden administration are exaggerating how good uh, people have it. Or maybe the people in Washington don't understand what the heartland is suffering because they're doing great. Washington sucks all the money out of the rest of the economy and they have a party. These guys are living large on other people's money, so maybe they don't realize that the rest of the country is paying the bill, that the rest of the country is suffering because they live in the bubble uh, that is Washington, D.C., or within the Beltway or whatever, Beltway bubble. And and so they are the ones that are detached from economic reality, uh, not the people who are uh, responding to these polls. But I want to focus my attention now on a very significant court case which a lot of people maybe aren't aware of. I talked about this case when the Supreme Court first granted certiorari and agreed to hear it and the the case um, is Moore versus the United States and it's probably the most significant Supreme Court case, you know, maybe in my lifetime Um, and if you read the way the media is framing it. Uh, Somehow they're saying that, well, if if the plaintiffs prevail on this, that it's really bad because it's going to cost the US government billions or trillions in lost tax revenue. But what's really at stake is our own freedom, or what's left of it, and our own liberty. And if the plaintiffs lose, there goes the rest of our liberty, because we're potentially basically opening up a Pandora's box of oppressive taxation in our future. If you're an American citizen, you are rooting for the plaintiffs to win. We want the U.S. government to have to do without those trillions of dollars of unconstitutional tax revenue. So if the government wants to replace that lost revenue, let them come up with a constitutional tax structure to do it. We can't uphold an unconstitutional tax simply because it means the government is gonna lose money because that's the purpose of the Constitution, to prevent the government from raising money precisely the way they're trying to do it. Now, what this case is about is the Moors uh, were hit by the deemed repatriation tax, which was actually passed by President Trump as part of the, the Jobs Act, and what it said is that if you're an American citizen and you have an interest in an overseas company, uh, that the law is going to tax you on all of the income that that overseas company had earned going backwards in time for, I forget, 10 years or more, whatever it was. And you have to pay a tax right now. We're going we're gonna to deem that you actually earned all that money, even though you've never seen it, you've never touched it you have no access to it, and you may never get it, right? Because they're a minority shareholder in a foreign company. Now, that foreign company is paying whatever foreign taxes it owes, right? So the money has been taxed at the corporate level in whatever jurisdiction it's domiciled. But because the Moores had, I don't know, 10% of it, whatever, some small percentage, they never saw any distributions, I mean, and they've never sold their stock. So they haven't received any income right in the sense of the word from the 16th amendment because they ha- they own an interest. But now they got hit with a tax bill. I think it was $15,000. So they went to the court and they said, hey, this is unconstitutional. This is not income. I never got any, any any benefit from this. You just can't tax this and claim its income. And they're correct, but they lost and they lost in the appellate court, but they appealed and the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Now, this is the constitutional principle, and I've talked about it before. I'm going to try to, you know, maybe put a link to a podcast where I went over this because I don't want to, you know, talk about it too much again because it'll be a really long podcast. Uh, but the Constitution establishes two great types of taxes. There's an indirect tax and there's a direct tax. Indirect taxes are like a sales tax. They're taxes that you pay indirectly. You buy a pack of cigarettes and you pay a tax. You don't send the money to the government. You know, the the cigarette company charges you, builds it into the tax or the store, you know, charges it. And and the money gets sent to the government indirectly. You don't send it there. And the government doesn't even know who you are. They don't care who you are. They don't know who bought that pack of cigarettes. They get the tax. And you don't have to keep any records. You don't have to swear under penalty of perjury that you paid the correct amount uh, of taxes when you bought your cigarettes. Nothing. It's very efficient. Uh, And the only constitutional restriction on, on indirect taxes is that they have to be uniform, meaning that they have to be the same all over the country. So if the federal government wants to tax cigarettes, the tax has to be the same in California as it is in Maine. They can't just set them at different levels. So they have to be uniform. The other type of tax is a direct tax. And a direct tax is basically when you take a check and send it directly to the government. The government sends you a bill and you send them the money. A, an example is a, a property tax, right? The, gov- the the state taxes your property every year. They say, you own this house. Here's how much you owe because you own this house. They're taxing your property. There is no federal property tax, only states. Why? Because only the federal government is bound by the constitutional requirement to apportion a direct tax. Now, what does it mean to apportion a direct tax? It means that each state has to pay uh, the amount of the tax in proportion to its population, which means the government has to first decide how much it wants to raise. Let's say the government wanted to raise $100 billion in a property tax. Well, if California is 10% of the population, well, then 10% of the tax has to come from California. Uh, But the problem there was, if you had a a, a poor state, that property tax rates in that state might be much, much higher in order for it to raise its share, and what happened was the reason um, that they they put this in, right, is they wanted to uh, prevent too uh, the smaller states or the poorer states from trying to drain the wealth of the wealthier states by taxing uh, things that they didn't that they didn't have. But the rates, the real problem is the, the disproportionate rates. So, for example, in income tax. If an income tax was still viewed as a direct tax, income tax rates would be higher in some states than in other states, which would be extremely unfair. Uh, uh, And so there there are no direct taxes because it's too difficult to impose them. And the reason for that is because the founding fathers didn't like direct taxes. Uh, They liked excise taxes because they said they're self-correcting as to abuse, meaning that if they raise the tax too much, you don't buy the product. Uh, But direct taxes are by their nature oppressive because you can't avoid them. They're just taxing you uh, directly. The only reason the government was even given the power to to levy a direct tax uh, was for war. And in fact, that's what the framers thought. They thought that direct taxes would be reserved for a war. Well, now we don't even bother. We just print money and and create inflation to pay for wars. Uh, But what's at stake here is the government now is trying to say that this tax is okay, that it's not a direct tax on property because the argument that uh, the Moors have made, and they're correct or their attorneys are correct, is what is being taxed here under the guise of income is property. The government is taxing the Moors because they own stock in a foreign company. They don't have any income because they haven't gotten a dividend and they haven't sold. And the government is trying to deem that income. They're trying to pretend that it's income so they can tax it without apportionment. And they can't do that. In fact, I put in my book, uh, The Real Crash Americans Coming uh, Bankruptcy, a quote from Eisner versus McComber, which is being discussed and was discussed today in oral argument. And this is what the court uh, wrote in, uh, in, in Eisner. Congress cannot, by any definition it may adopt, conclude the matter since it cannot, by legislation, alter the Constitution. And what they meant by the matter was, what is the definition of income? And the court said, it's not up to Congress. They can't define income however they want because then they can change the Constitution. You have to have a legal definition of income, uh, because that's what Congress can tax. It says they can tax income, so they can't define income. And if you look at all the Supreme Court cases, income is the gain derived uh, from uh, labor or capital or the combination thereof. It is a gain derived. How do you how do you derive a gain? You realize that gain, right? You get money, right, from some from your activity. You earned money. Now what the government is arguing is that you don't have to actually uh, realize a gain to have income. The government is claiming that anything that makes you richer, they're saying that income should be defined as any increase in the value of something or your wealth between two arbitrary points in time. So the government can say, hey, between 2010 and, and 2020, if some asset that you owned went up in value during those ten years, well, that's income, and now we're going to levy a tax on it. Right? This is a huge change in American tax law to try to say uh, that the government can just define any appreciation as income when it can't. And they're really talking about the the, the concept of realization. The Plaintiffs are arguing that income has to be realized before it can be taxed, which, which is true. You have to realize a gain before you have a gain. And if you don't realize the gain, you may never get it. I mean, how many times have you owned a stock that went way up, and you didn't sell it, and then it went way down, and by the time you sold it, you actually lost money? The fact that at one moment in time, You could have had a gain if you chose to realize it It is irrelevant to the fact that that gain is gone and you don't have it. But the government wants to be able to tax it. I got another quick commercial break. I'm going to continue on this very important topic when we get back. So we're talking about the government's attempt to get the Supreme Court to validate a massive expansion of the government's limited power to tax by allowing the government to define anything it wants as income so that it can tax it without apportionment as a direct tax pursuant to the, the 16th amendment. And a big part of the discussion, That I was listening to, and you can hear it, it's on YouTube, you can hear the whole whole argument before the Supreme Court, uh, is the realization that whether or not income has to be realized. And the government says it doesn't have to be realized, that that's not a component. And I was listening to Sotomayor questioning uh, the plaintiffs, and she seems to be of the opinion that it doesn't have to be realized. And she said, and she asked the lawyer to explain, well, if the framers of the Constitution intended it to only apply to realized income, then why doesn't the 16th amendment read Congress shall have the right to lay and collect taxes on realized income. And she's trying to think that because her claim that because they didn't put the word realized before income, uh, that it means that they didn't limit it to realized income. And that is pure BS because it would have been redundant because based on the very definition of income, not only the definition that was in standard use at the time that the amendment was adopted, but all the definitions that have been upheld by the court. Because, you know, I mentioned this and I wrote it in my book and I mentioned the podcast. The Internal Revenue Code itself doesn't define income. Right? It only defines gross income, but it defines gross income, and this is section 61. It says gross income is all income for whatever source derived. Well, You can't define a word using the word. There's a definition of gross income as income, but there's no definition of income. And I actually heard the government's attorney admit this. I was surprised. She actually told the Supreme Court that the Internal Revenue Code doesn't define income. Right, I'm surprised she knew that. Um, But she didn't want the court to define it either, which of course the court is supposed to define it because it's a legal matter not a a legislative matter, because Congress can't change the Constitution by changing uh, the meaning of, of words. But getting back to Sotomayor, so she's saying, well, why didn't they say realized income? There was no point. It's implicit in the word. When you say Congress can tax income, you don't have to say that the income has to be realized because if it's not realized, it's not income. An unrealized gain is not your income. Just because your house appreciated in value one year doesn't mean that counts as your income, right? But if the court finds in favor of the government, that's exactly what Congress will be able to do. They will have unlimited taxing power to say that any increase in your wealth counts as income that they can tax. And this is particularly dangerous with high inflation. Because with high inflation, the dollar price of everything you own goes up, even if you're not any richer because it's just inflation. But this opens up a a, a door for massive taxation on inflationary gains that are unrealized when inflation is a tax anyway. So there is a lot at stake here. Uh, I really wish I could have argued it. I mean, I'm not going to say that the, that the lawyers there didn't do a good job. In fact, I talked to these guys. I almost called them again a couple of days ago. I kind of wish I had. But I, I called them months and months ago, and I gave them a bit of a pep talk, and I gave them you know, some pointers, but I, I wanted to refresh it. Uh, but I know he, he has a good understanding of, uh, of the issue. But I just think I would do a really good job of arguing this point uh, before, the, before the Supreme Court. But, you know, I, 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 I'm going to go back. I haven't even heard the whole thing. I started listening to it uh, before the podcast. I didn't even realize that, that it was up there until I, I searched it. Uh, but it is very significant, uh, the outcome of this. And I really hope, and this would be a great service that that former President Trump did, if the justices that he put in there actually stand on this principle and limit The government's ability to tax because one of the arguments that the government is making is you know you you can't take you can't do this you're going to screw up the tax code there are other things that may be unconstitutional yeah they are unconstitutional let's get rid of them you know that's what i want to do i want to preserve protect and defend the constitution not say well we should set aside the constitution because it's inconvenient and it's going to interfere with the government's ability to collect taxes. That's why we have a constitution, because the government doesn't have an unlimited power to tax the way it wants. It's limited by the constitution. And some of these justices are letting those uh, concerns uh, known that, wait a minute, I mean, you're asking us to open the door here. Uh, What limits then will there be on power? You know, they're talking a lot about the Eisner case, and they're trying to uh, minimize it because the case actually involved a stock dividend. Guy got a stock dividend, and the government tried to tax it as income. And they said, "Well, no, you can't tax this. I, I you know, I didn't really get any income. I just got more shares of the same company." And, and and so clearly, a stock dividend doesn't make you richer because you're just splitting the stock, right? And you've got you know more slices of the same pie, but you don't have any more pie, right? But The case itself, the Eisner case, didn't just focus on the fact that a stock dividend is an income. They went into a discussion of the definition of income and what is income and what is not income, and more importantly, that Congress can't decide, that it can't just say, hey, I'm gonna gonna declare something income, because then they're amending the Constitution, which they can't do. So the Eisner case is far more important then the government is claiming, and they're asking this Supreme Court to completely ignore it, and the cases that came after it, that relied on it, on establishing the legal definition, the constitutional definition of income. And that means you've got to get the money. They can't tax you on income that you never received, and just claim, well, you might receive it, or you could have received it. But you know, in the case of, uh, in this case, there, there was no ability for the Moors to get the money, like the government is arguing that well partnerships, right? They they have taxes or corporations, uh, but in those cases you actually could have the money, and 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 you're not you're not taking the money. You have control over the money. You have control over the distributions. Uh, it's your money. You could have taken it. You left it in a different form, but here the the um, the Morris had no control. They 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 had they were a small minority owners of this company. They had no they have no control. They've never seen a nickel. They may never see a nickel, who knows? Now, if they're going to say, well, you know, you have control. You could have sold your house at the end of the year. The fact that you didn't, well, that's not our problem. You could have sold it, and so we're going to make you pay income taxes on all the appreciation. That's not income, you know. Be, you you the whole purpose of the income is to tax the actual earnings that you have, the gains that you derive. So the way you derive a gain on property is you rent it out and you collect uh, rents, and then the government can tax those rents as income. Uh, Or you sell the property, you don't have it anymore, and you receive an amount that exceeds what you paid, and that difference is your gain, and that's what they can tax. If you just buy a house and you don't rent it out, you live in it, and it appreciates, you haven't gained anything. You have the same house that you bought. Doesn't matter that somebody else paid more money for the house across the street. That doesn't affect, you have the same house. It's got the same number of bathrooms, right? It provides the same shelter. You're no better off just because the price has gone up. And of course, what happens if the price goes up one year and the government says, oh, you owe an income tax, and then it goes down the next year? Well, now what are you gonna do, right? Uh, So this is a huge constitutional principle. I really hope that not only do the mores prevail, I want the Supreme Court to establish a precedent that everybody can see that says that the government can't just decide something that's not income is income and tax it anyway. And if they do it the right way, then we're going to put a nail in the coffin of a wealth tax. Because a wealth tax is clearly a direct tax. It needs to be apportioned. And income tax is a direct tax, too. Unfortunately, the 16th Amendment and the Brasheber case, and the way it's been interpreted, the government can tax income, even though it is direct, without regard to apportionment. But the amendment is limited to income. Any other direct taxes that are not direct taxes on income are still subject to the rule of apportionment, which means we're not going to have them. But to get around that, the government can't just tax a bunch of stuff that's not income and call it income. They can't tax your property by claiming we're taxing the unrealized depreciation of your property and call it income. No, it's a property tax. If you're going to tax my property that I haven't sold, I don't care what you want to call it, it's a property tax. And property taxes have been ruled. Pollock ruled it and Bershaber and no Supreme Court case has ever overturned. Pollock on that, a tax on real estate, a tax on stocks, a tax on any form of wealth, is a property tax, and it needs to be apportioned. It is not income. You have to derive the income before it can be taxed. And that means you have to get it. You have to have receipt of the money, right? constructive actual receipt, not, and its realization. I mean, that is, that is the key, and it doesn't have to be written in there. Anyway, I want to, though, finish up the podcast. One more important point. I want to talk about my, my bank. I know some people I've been seeing are like, hey, Peter, you, you're beating a dead horse here. You're talking too much about it. This is a very significant issue, not just because I have personal experience, but my personal experience puts me in a very strong position to talk about this, because this is extreme corruption. On the part of government on the part of the media that needs to be told people need to realize that this is going on and i have got uh you know direct proof you know normally i don't have direct proof i just observe it right it's anecdotal or i'm just looking at other things i'm living this i have all the experience and all the evidence to to back this up the first thing has to do with the attempt on the part of the people who I won, who I sued for defamation. When I filed my lawsuit uh, against 60 Minutes, I filed it against 60 Minutes, the age, the two reporters, uh, Charlotte Greve and Nick McKenzie, and Joel Tozar, who was the producer of 60 Minutes. Five respondents. I won seven judgments in a row against all five respondents. After I won my seventh judgment, they surrendered. They gave up and they consented to the judge issuing a final order, granting me a judgment in excess of what the judge himself could have legally given me. So they basically said, we give up, Schiff, you can get the maximum. You can get more than the maximum. We surrender, we consent to judgment being entered against us, all five of us, unconditionally. I didn't have to do anything. It's not a settlement. Normally in a settlement, the parties give a little, they compromise on something, and you don't get a judgment in a settlement. You avoid a judgment. You tell the court, hey, we've settled the matter. There's nothing more for you to do. That's not what happened here. I didn't give McKenzie or 60 Minutes anything. They, it was unconditional surrender. They told the court, we lost. You don't have to rule that we lost. We are going to surrender on our own. We don't need a final decision on this. We we give. We've we've lost so many times. Every possible defense that we had has been thrown out. We've got nothing. We we, we consent to judgment. That is not a a settlement. And the other thing is, let's assume that uh, Nick McKenzie and the age decided that despite the overwhelming evidence that they were going to lose, that they had already lost, that they said, you know what, we're going to stick it out. We want to see what the judge says. If the judge came out and said exactly what they admitted to, yep, you lose judgment against all five respondents, pay Schiff his legal costs, pay him his uh, this money, they could have appealed I mean, they would have been fools, but they could have done it. They could have taken that decision and said, you know what, the judge got it wrong. We're appealing to a higher court. They can't do that now because they've already agreed with the judge before he ruled. They said, we accept that we lost, we admit it, we surrender, uh, and, um, you know, that's it. So they can't even appeal anymore. So what I won was actually stronger than a normal win because they have no possibility of appealing to a higher court to claim that this court got it wrong when they've already admitted that I got it right. I won on everything. It was an unconditional victory on everything that I complained of. I got full restitution to the extent that I could uh, by Australian law against all five parties. Now, despite that, you know, they're, they're trying to whitewash it. You know, the New York Times says, I settled the case, you know, the case was resolved. No one wants to say, I won the case, they lost the case. But there was this big battle uh, on Wikipedia, because I noticed, you know, uh, and, and, uh, that on Mick McKenzie's page, doesn't mention that, that he lost this big lawsuit. It mentions prominently the defamation case he won, but doesn't say anything about my case that he lost. So some people tried to add it, and it was removed. And then his page got locked and it's impossible uh, to put it back on. There's no reference anywhere on Nick McKenzie's uh, page that he lost uh, my my lawsuit, or even that the lawsuit existed. They have whitewashed the whole thing. There used to be a link. Somebody put a link to the Daily Wire article and that got removed. And the same thing for my Wikipedia page. At one point it said that I won a judgment against Nick McKenzie and that got eliminated. And so did the link to the uh, Daily Daily Wire. So a lot of their friends in the media have been intervening, trying to whitewash the reputation. By the way, today I put on the Internet all seven of my winning judgments. And I also on Twitter, and I probably should put this up, but I, I tweeted out a link to the uh, Court of Australia, the Federal Court of Australia official website where anybody can see the judgment that was entered in my favor against all five respondents, which includes uh, Nick McKenzie. But you can read all that. I also put on my uh, uh, shift radio, I put on there um, the two hearings where uh, Nine Network argued that I shouldn't be allowed to publicly criticize uh, their, their reporters, that I, that I shouldn't be allowed to harm their reputations, and that the public has no right to see the inner workings of journalists. Well, I put some of the inner workings of journalists up. On my YouTube channel, you can see my entire unedited interview, about a 50-minute interview with Nick McKenzie. Anybody who watches that, and about 50,000 people have, but anybody who watches that, it's very clear that I had nothing to hide, that I answered all the questions, Uh, that were given to me, but after the same questions were asked five or six times, you know, I got a little irritated, especially when I was being accused of crimes that I knew I didn't commit and for which he had no evidence, just unsubstantiated allegations. I I just put up yesterday, and I would encourage everybody to watch this one because there's only about 12,000 views, I put up the actual 60 Minutes segment that was taken down and ruled defamatory. I didn't put up the whole segment. It was about 25 minutes long, 20, 26 minutes. I put up about nine minutes of it, just the part that focused on my interview. So I I showed exactly how 60 minutes misrepresented that interview to try to represent me as guilty with something to hide. You know, they focused, you know, they started and ended with me getting out of my chair, right? That was how they bookended the whole thing but they overlaid it with eerie music and dark lighting. And they said all sorts of things to make me look guilty, to make me look like I was hiding something, to make me look like I refused to answer questions that I had repeatedly answered. So look at that. It's up there. It is on uh, my YouTube channel. It's how Nick McKenzie and 60 Minutes to Fame, Peter Schiff. So watch that whole nine minute video and then watch the entire unedited video And and, and you can see the difference. But something else happened today, and I just learned this today, and it's very interesting, and I want to kind of get the information out there. I got an email from a client, former customer rather, of the bank, letting me know that he was investigated by the authorities in the Netherlands back in um, 2018. He was investigated specifically because he had an account at my bank. And in fact, you know, he came home and there were two agents for their revenue service waiting for him, serving him, and he had to go to a hearing uh, in, in, in Amsterdam. And he, they wanted all this information, all his transactions at my bank. And he showed me an email that was sent to him about, about the investigation uh, in mid-May uh, of 2018. And in the subject of the email, it said Atlantis. Atlantis is the code name that the J-5 gave for the investigation of my bank. But here's the interesting thing. The J-5 didn't exist in May of 2018. It wasn't created until the week of June 2018, over a month later. So the investigation of my bank with the code name Operation Atlantis predates the formation of the J-5, which supposedly was running the investigation. What that tells me is that the J-5 may have been formed specifically about my investigation. So that day of action that was in January of 2020 wasn't the beginning of the investigation. It had already been ongoing for a year and a half. You know, the Netherlands is one of the five countries that is part of the J-5. So this is where it all started. But then it also dawned on me, and I never thought about this, when Jim Lee, who uh, is the, uh, the head of the criminal investigation for the IRS, the top criminal guy, when he flew down to Puerto Rico to talk at the press conference uh, to close my bank, he admitted, or he said, that this is the four-year anniversary of the formation of the J-5, that four years ago this week, we established the J-5, and he's really excited about it. Well, what are the odds that the commissioner of OSIF, the regulators here in Puerto Rico, they just decided on their own to shut down my bank because it didn't have enough capital and invite all five of the the, the leaders of the J-5 to this press conference, and it just so happened that all this fell on the four-year anniversary of the formation of the J-5, right? That's not a coincidence. It's more evidence that it was the J-5 that got this press conference. It's the J-5 that pressured the local regulators to shutting down my bank. Probably they wanted something to celebrate on their four year anniversary because they established the J5 four years ago to investigate my bank and found absolutely nothing. Uh, And so they needed some phony reason to have something to show for four years of wasted time and taxpayer money. And so they got the Puerto Rican government to shut down my bank on their four year anniversary uh, so they can have this BS celebration. And you know, interestingly too, Jim Lee used the words, this is sending a strong message. Osif is sending a strong message that Puerto Rico won't be used by tax evaders and money launderers, even though Osif mentioned that the bank was being shut down and it had nothing to do with the J-5 investigation or money laundering or tax evasion. It was because it was insolvent, which it wasn't. Uh, and of course, you know, so she basically says we're shutting down the bank. It's got nothing to do with the J-5, but I just happened to invite all five members of the J-5 to talk about the bank that I'm announcing is closing, even though it has nothing to do with this investigation. Oh, and by the way, it happens to be the four-year anniversary <laughs> of the formation uh, of the J-5. But Jim Lee today said almost the same thing. I was reading a quote. There was a Swiss bank that was just fine." And it, like $120, 130000000 million, it's paying into the U.S. Treasury because it was found to have uh, helped Americans evade taxes or launder money. And Lee said, this is a powerful message. But this fine is sending a powerful message to anybody who will try to evade their taxes or hide their money offshore. That's an example of what happens when a bank may have actually been guilty. Now, maybe they weren't guilty. I don't know. Sometimes they just pay a settlement. But... This Swiss bank paid $120, $130 million. My bank paid nothing. I didn't pay a nickel to the U.S. Treasury because they found absolutely nothing. They must have found something against this bank that the bank was willing to settle, I imagine. But the other difference is this Swiss bank is still in business. The Swiss government didn't put them out of business the way the Puerto Rican government put my bank out of business. So this bank, in theory, was guilty paid $120 million fine, yet is still operating, business as usual. My bank was innocent, paid no fine, but it was put out of business. And another thing that this client told me, this former bank customer, I don't have this in writing, but he said it was told to him and his, with his lawyer uh, on the phone. It was a phone call. So at the end of this uh, investigation of him and how he used his Euro Pacific Bank account, The local authorities in the Netherlands concluded the investigation without any charges. They basically said, okay, you're okay. You didn't do anything wrong, right? One of the the agents warned this guy. He said, you got to get your money out of that bank. It's it's very dangerous to leave. You shouldn't leave any money in that bank. You should take your money out. And he told me his response was, well, why? They don't make any loans. It's 100% reserve bank. What's the risk? he said the agent followed up and told him that bank's going to be shut down, so get your money out before it gets shut down. He did. He immediately withdrew all of the money he had on deposit at my bank because he was told by the um, tax authorities in the Netherlands that my bank was going to be shut down. Now, here's the significance here. the. Netherlands has no jurisdiction in Puerto Rico. They can't shut down my bank, even if they wanted to. They can't do anything about it. So if this guy was so confident that my bank was going to be shut down, it could only be because he was also working with the IRS. And somebody from the IRS had told them, yes, we are going to shut this bank down. That means they decided four years before, my bank got shut down by Puerto Rican regulators, that they wanted to shut it down. That was their goal. That was the goal of the Atlantis investigation that actually was going on for four years before my bank was shut down, and now it's five years, five years of investigating my bank, finding absolutely nothing wrong. But they wanted to shut it down, and I think that's proof that they are the reason it got shut down. Now, they were hoping to shut it down because they found that it was helping people launder money and evade taxes. But when they found no evidence of that, when they found the opposite, that the bank was actually doing everything it could to prevent people from laundering money and evading taxes, they wanted to shut it down anyway. So how did they do that? Well, they leaked information to the media, to the New York Times, to uh, the Australian journalists, and they probably selectively leaked it. They probably made it appear that we were guilty, even though they knew we were innocent. And they knew that the bad publicity associated with this leak would wreck the bank. They had no legal ability to wreck it, so they called on their friends in the media to do what they couldn't do, to ruin the bank for them. even though the bank was still operating, because remember, I stayed in business for a long time because I kept funding the bank, I kept putting money into the bank, and I found a new company to buy the bank. And so when they saw that the media's uh, 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 campaign didn't destroy the bank, the bank was still standing, then they came in and they pressured the regulators to come up with a pretense to shut down my bank And so they came up with this capital issue, and they planned it on the anniversary, the four-year anniversary, of the formation of of the G5. I think I've built a a very strong case that this was a complete illegal action on the part of the United States government to deprive me of my property in violation of the Constitution, its abuse of power, its obstruction of justice. Uh, I wish somebody... Uh, would take this case, I'm talking to different uh, lawyers, see if anybody wants to, wants, wants to do it, I would more, more like Congress to investigate it. Nobody seems to care. You know, I, I called on uh, listeners of this podcast that I would uh, make the same appeal. Call your local congressman, anyone that's got a Republican, particularly in your own district. If you've got somebody on the committee, Jim Jordan, if you're in Jim Jordan's, District. I forget, I got to look up where Jim Jordan is, because Jim Jordan chairs the subcommittee that is right now sitting, subcommittee. They're supposed to investigate the IRS for abuse of power for targeting conservatives. I got all the evidence to, pr- to prove that they targeted me for, uh, you know, because of my views. Libertarian, conservative, doesn't really matter. They targeted me based on my politics. They need to open up an investigation. I'm hitting a brick wall. All of my FOIA requests go unanswered. I get one excuse after another why they can't give me the information I want. Um, But Congress can get that information. Congress can put Jim Lee on the stand and demand an explanation for his actions. Uh, This needs to happen. I think the guy would be charged criminally uh, if we did this investigation, which I think is a great political issue for the Republicans too. But there needs to be a check on the executive power. I mean, we've got two big things here. We've got the Supreme Court potentially considering unlimited taxing power. And if the government can get away with what they did to me, then they can get away with doing it to anybody. And there needs to be a check. The government can't do this. The IRS can't operate in this way. They're there to collect revenue, right? It's, they're not there uh, to pursue political agendas and punish people uh, that, that, that advocate things that they disagree with. Because that's what they did. They wanted to put my bank out of business. They didn't give a damn if the bank was doing anything wrong. They investigated it, hoping they would find it did something wrong, and found it did nothing wrong. So then they found a way to destroy it anyway. It's like, you know, uh, they, they, they investigate somebody for a crime. They realize they're innocent but they, they, they charge them anyway, and they try to make up evidence to put them in jail, even though they know that they're innocent. The purpose of an investigation is to find the truth. Well, the last thing the, the uh, J-5 wanted was the truth, and unfortunately, that's the same thing that happened with uh, the Australian media and the New York Times, because when they did their own investigation, it not only didn't corroborate what they were told by the, the government, but it disproved it. Every single person they spoke to, every former customer of the bank, every former employee of the bank, every referral agent, they were unanimous. They all talked about how strict our compliance was, how robust our compliance was, what a pain in the ass our compliance was, how we questioned every transaction, how it took weeks to get an account open. They didn't hear one example of, oh yeah, they, you know, it was easy to get an account, they, they, didn't, they didn't do a lot of uh, you know, oversight, no. So everything they were, that they learned in their investigation contradicted what they were told by the government, yet they, they adopted the government's position anyway and altered their own facts to try to present the false case that the bank was guilty of what the government already knew, uh, crimes we didn't commit. But anyway, so th- this is a big story. We, we gotta keep it alive. We gotta keep pushing and fighting against the establishment to get this story told. But I would love it if we could get that guy, Jim Lee, and other people under oath before Congress to answer these questions, to produce these documents, because I got them dead to rights. There's just a few pieces of the puzzle that I can't produce because I have no authority to compel the records. But Congress does. Congress can get the missing definitive proof. I have all the anecdotal evidence. I have all the circumstantial evidence. I built a fantastic case. And in fact, it, it, it doesn't even make sense that anything other than what I believe happened, happened. I just need the final proof that only Congress or court can extract. So do what you can to help me and, 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 and write your congressman or call your congressman, again, especially Jim Jordan, or any Republicans who are sitting on that committee and get them to contact me. I'll give them all the information, right? Just you know, everything they need. I'll email it to them, I'll talk to them, I'll build I'll the entire case. I'll, I'll hand it to them on a silver platter. All they got to do is follow up. Anyway, that's it for now. Bye, everybody. I'll be back on Friday for the Jobs Report podcast.